Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Kids, you are turned loose, freed up, dismissed to go with Pastor Jeremiah right down the middle there, off to your classes. We speak blessings over you as you go. We love to have in you. Good morning. My name is Dave. I am one of the pastors of this church family here at Cedar Mill. And this morning, we are continuing our look I'm at the life of Moses. We're in a series. This is week four. We're talking about Moses and his journey with God, how he's learning to follow God and learning to rely on God's deliverance. Last week, we left off, and Moses was still in the wilderness. He was, he was still asking questions, still wrestling with the calling that God had for his life to go to Pharaoh and demand deliverance for his people. We talked about how, how the narrative was sort of building towards this anticipated and impending showdown between two I am's. On one side, I am Pharaoh. I am an evil, powerful, oppressive dictator. And on the other side, I am Yahweh. I am God. I am who I am. Well, this morning, we're going to explore how the showdown goes down. That's the title of my message today. How the showdown goes down. And what happens when Moses goes to Pharaoh this morning, we're going to cover six chapters of the Exodus story. And, and these chapters are called the plague narrative. And we're going to cover these verses. We're not going to look at everyone, so don't panic. It's not like a six-hour ser sermon. Um, but we're going to look at four different characters in the story and what we learn from them as Moses goes and confronts Pharaoh. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 5. First, we want to talk about Moses a little bit. He's our, he's our first character. And as we open chapter 5, Moses has finally been convinced to do it. He's finally been convinced to go back to Egypt and confront Pharaoh. He has, at this point, talked to the Hebrew leaders, and they seem to be receptive. They're kind of on board with Moses' plan and what he's saying. And now Moses is going to go and talk to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. The question that, that Pharaoh asks, the very first words out of his mouth, is this is actually the driving question of all five of these chapters. Who is the Lord? that I should obey him. Hey, let my people go, Pharaoh. Like, I'm here, my people, let them go. That's what God says. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And what we expect, and what Moses is sort of hoping for here, I think, is that God is going to answer this question for Pharaoh emphatically and immediately. Who is the Lord? We will show you who the Lord is. God, do your thing now, right? It's time. But that's not what happens. In fact, initially, it, it doesn't seem to be Pharaoh that suffers, Egypt that suffers, but Israel. Actually, it doesn't seem like God shows up at all. Verse 9 says, Pharaoh says this. He says, hey, not only do I not even, I'm not even scared of your God, make the work harder for the people so that they keep working 
and pay no attention to these lies. Like, I, like, I, it must be because these people have too much time on their hands that they're thinking about salvation and deliverance. So let's just, let's just take it up a notch. Let's just make them work harder. And then listen to the response of the people. First, they go to Pharaoh and complain. And then in verse 20, these are the Hebrew people. It says, when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. That word obnoxious in Hebrew, it literally means odorous or to stink. The people say, Moses, you have made us stink. In fact, Moses, you stink and Pharaoh stinks. And this whole plan that you supposedly got from God, it all stinks. And so Moses shows up and says, you know, hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm here with the power of God, guys. This is how it goes down. Guys, I'm here and God's with me and I've got the power of God. Look at this snake thing I can do with my staff. Look at this cool leprosy trick I got. Like, leprosy? No leprosy. You've never seen that before, right? Like, and, and the people are like, hooray, Moses is here. Let's do it. And then things get really, really hard. And they say, we change our minds. Moses, you stink. And so now Moses feels alone. Friends, the path of obedience to God will at times be a lonely place. Hear that. Some of you should write that down. The path of obedience to God will at times be a lonely place. Because loneliness will challenge your faithfulness. Loneliness will undermine your resolve to obey God and follow him in faith. And this is what happens to Moses. It says this in verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. I would, I would love to have actually heard the tone in Moses' voice when he said that. Like, I wish it wasn't just words on a paper like, and you have not rescued your people at all. Like his little temper tantrum here from Moses. Moses is actually feeling a little bit like, like Charlie Brown in this moment, you know, like with the football. Like, I, like, I trusted you, Lord. I trusted you not to pull the football away. And I went to kick it. And now you just look a lot like Lucy to me. And yet what we see here is that Moses' commitment to obedience is actually pretty thin. I'll obey God as long as it goes well. I'll obey as long as it's easy. I'll obey you as long as your plan is, is up and to the right. But friends, God is looking for obedience that stands in the face of resistance. And so Moses and God go back and forth for another full chapter. Moses, you know, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? God, just obey me and see what happens. Moses, I'm not skilled enough for this calling. God, I know you're not, but I'll be with you. And then finally, in chapter 7, all of a sudden, the story turns. This is the turning point of the plague narratives. This is when things really start to take off. Chapter 7, verse 6. 
Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, understand that up to this point in the story, there have been no miracles. There have been, there have been no plagues yet. There have been no divine acts by God towards Egypt in front of Pharaoh. And yet, as soon as Moses obeys, God's power is revealed. As soon as Moses does what God says to do, staffs start to become snakes and rivers flow with blood and there's frogs and flies and locusts and gnats and all these things just miraculously begin to happen. But it doesn't happen until Moses is ready to trust God and step out in faith and obey him. Friends, here's the main point of the first section. God works through obedience. God works through... Let me define what obedience is for some of you because you might not be sure. Obedience is doing what God says to do. That might be the most profound thing you hear from me all day. Doing what God says to do even when it's hard. Doing what God says to do even when it's scary. Doing what God says to do even when there's doubt and fear and insecurity and risk. You see, some of us in this room will sit through this entire series and say to ourselves things like, well, you know, I'd, I'd follow God too. I would sell out for God as well if he'd appear to me in a burning bush. I mean, I would be all in with Jesus, you know, if he'd turn my staff into a snake. I mean, if he would part the Red Sea for me to cross on dry ground, then I'd be in 100. But I've never seen God work in my life that way. Friends, we haven't seen God work in our lives, perhaps because we haven't obeyed him long enough to experience what he might do. We haven't been willing to take the risk the chance of faith. God works through obedience, and as soon as Moses obeys, God's power is revealed. Let me ask you, friends, where is God calling for persistent obedience in your life? Where is God asking for persistent obedience in your life? Maybe that is the very place where you will see his power revealed. Maybe that's the place where you'll get the the burning bush or the Red Sea or the miracle that you've so longed for. You've heard other people talk about, God did this in my life and he did that in my life and I saw God move and work and you think that never happened to me. Well, obey him. Step out in faith and then see what happens. That's Moses. And now I want to look at Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not a collaborative leader. I don't know if you know this about him. Um, He's not really into empowering others. He's not into a diversity of perspectives. He's not like an inverted pyramid kind of guy where the leader's on the bottom and everyone else is up top. Pharaoh's more into like the original pyramid scheme. In fact, he built the original pyramid, so that, that works for him. Anyway, we've already established that he starts off this entire section by saying, who is the Lord that I should obey him? See, Pharaoh is cocky. Pharaoh is arrogant. There is no part of Pharaoh that isn't intimidated by God or Moses in any way. But then, but then, God starts to reveal his power. Moses' staff becomes a snake, and then the Nile 
river turns to blood. And at first, these plagues do not seem to face Pharaoh. He just sort of shrugs them off. In fact, at the end of chapter 7, right after the entire Nile River was turned to blood, we read this. It says, Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. Nile, smile. This doesn't faze me at all, Pharaoh says. But then, but then, as the plagues begin to pile up, as the frogs come and cover the land, and as gnats come and flies come and livestock starts to die, and locusts come and destroy and devour every bit of vegetation everywhere, Pharaoh has a hard time shrugging these things off so easily. In fact, when the, when the frogs show up, this is plague number two, and they're everywhere, by the way. The Bible says that they're in bedrooms, beds, that they're even in people's ovens, that they're on their countertops. Everywhere you look, frogs. Frogs are cute until they're in your bed, right? Like, like it's, frogs are awesome until there's one on your face in the middle of the night. And you're like, these frogs are driving me crazy. Listen to what Pharaoh says. In the middle of the frog plague, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go, offer sacrifices to the Lord. And, and this happens. Moses and Aaron pray, and the frogs all die. We're told they were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. Now there's not just frogs everywhere. Now there's dead frogs everywhere. The land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, it would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Here's another example. In chapter 10, when the locusts come, Pharaoh is again humbled and he says this, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Here's my point. Doesn't Pharaoh sound repentant? Doesn't he sound like contrite when you read those words? Doesn't it sound like he's honestly and truly sorry and that he really wants to change this? I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive me, he says. This seems so sincere. Friends, this kind of false repentance from Pharaoh happens over and over and over again. And there's a phrase that describes Pharaoh throughout the entire plague narrative that his heart is hardened. That his heart is hardened. This doesn't mean that Pharaoh's a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. This doesn't mean that Pharaoh makes bad decisions or does wrong stuff. Every single person on the planet does that. This means that he is set in his sinful ways. And that even though he seems to confess and seems to apologize and repent, once there is relief, once he doesn't think he needs God anymore, he's back to his old ways. He's back to doing Pharaoh. Friends, I know we read this story and all of us want to relate with Moses. How do we see ourselves in Moses? How do we see ourselves in the Hebrews? But maybe, maybe this story is asking, how do we relate with Pharaoh? 
Is there sin in our lives? Is there wrong in our lives? Are there things that we are doing or not doing that we know displease the Lord? And he's trying to get our attention. He's saying to us over and over and over again, turn, repent. No longer with that behavior, no longer with that apathy, no longer with those words or that perspective or the way that you're doing this or not doing that. And maybe that conviction is coming through a challenging conversation with a friend or a spouse or a parent. Maybe that conviction comes on a Sunday morning during worship where you just feel your heart saying, yeah, I'm not, not anymore. I want to be different. Maybe it comes after a challenging message. And maybe in those times, after you've gotten the point and you say, yes, Lord, I'm sorry, I'll do it different, I'll change, please forgive me. Then later, then later, when the emotion's gone and when the conviction has dissipated and when the temptation and pressure are there again, you're back to living just the way you did before. How many of us in this room are a lot like Pharaoh? You see, here's our second point. God requires real repentance. Real repentance. He doesn't just want words. He doesn't just want emotion during worship. He doesn't, he desires tangible change in our lives. And just like with Pharaoh, he will keep after you and he will keep after me until he gets it. Let me ask you, friends. Where is God calling for change in your life these days? Where does he need your priorities to shift, your patterns to change, your behaviors to turn around and go a different way? Now, on this point, I also want us to see that this is not just an individual challenge. We're kind of trained to think about how does the Bible relate to me, but often the Bible is trained to say, this is how I want you to think about us. Pharaoh here doesn't just represent Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. He's the king of an entire nation. And so this challenge is for not just Pharaoh, but for all of Egypt. When you read the plague narratives, you notice that they don't just hit Pharaoh. It's not like, and then the palace was filled with frogs. Pharaoh walked into the palace and there were flies everywhere. No, everyone, the entire nation is struck with these plagues. And so we have to ask this question, what is Egypt? I'll tell you what Egypt was. The most powerful and prosperous nation in the world with tons of wealth and comfort enjoyed primarily through the hard labor and suffering of others. And in this story, God is saying, Pharaoh, I know it's not going to be good for your economy. I know it's not the right fiscal move to let the Hebrews go. I know it's not good for production to sacrifice this phenomenally cheap labor force. But sometimes worldly abundance is the enemy of sincere repentance. That will apply to nations, to families, and to individuals. Sometimes worldly abundance is the enemy of sincere repentance. They will lead you down two very different paths. 
Friends, if Moses teaches us that God works through repentance, then Pharaoh teaches us that God requires and longs for real repentance, longs for us to turn away from the evil and oppression and sin in our lives and in this world towards a new path, towards his path for us. Point number three. And our character for point number three is is not actually a person. Our character for point number three is actually the plagues themselves. The actual plagues. Because when Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? You have to understand that what Pharaoh is not saying here is, I don't think your God is real. He's not saying that. That's kind of how we're trained. We're very monotheistic in our thinking. We're trained to think like, Pharaoh doesn't believe in God. No, Pharaoh believes in God. He does. I mean, this is a, this is a pluralistic culture. Um, they believed in tons of different deities. And so Pharaoh is essentially not saying, I don't believe in God. He's just saying, I don't think your God is as strong as my gods. I don't think I, my dad can beat up your dad. That's what Pharaoh's saying. He's saying, I got a bunch of gods. Who is your God? And he thinks he's going to come in here and boss me around with all the gods that I've got. And so when the Lord starts to bring these plagues on Egypt through Moses, he does it in a very, very intentional and systemic way. A way that not only shows his power, but also, also the Egyptian God's complete lack of power. In fact, if you list out the 10 plagues, you can see that each one is designed very specifically to challenge and expose a specific God of Egypt. I won't talk about all of them. Don't worry. We're not going to go through the whole list, but I've got them there on the screen for you. Friends, you need to know this. The Egyptians worshiped these gods. They sacrificed to these gods. They worshiped them in order to win their favor, in order to reap the blessings that these gods might offer in their lives. They offered the fertility gods so they might be fertile, the economy gods so that they'd have money, the happiness gods so their lives would be full of of richness and blessing. There's all these different gods for different things, and they said, God, just favor me, bless me, help my life to be good. The Egyptians also wanted the good life, friends. Now, I know it's our temptation to read this story and think, those silly Egyptians. I mean, who would worship all these gods? That's the, I mean, these ancient people must not have been so smart to think that there were all these gods. I mean, I can't believe that they would do such a thing, right? That's kind of our, our perspective sometimes. But listen, friends, listen. We are not much different than them. We may not have statues and temples, But you can't convince me that a good number of people in here aren't worshiping at the altar of economic success or the altar of endless entertainment or the altar of sexuality or the altar of popularity or the altar of approval of others. You see, we may not have golden images in our homes, but we've got cars and homes and toys and screens and posts, and apps, and websites that we spend time worshiping at all the time. And we go there, why? For the same reason the Egyptians went to their gods, to find favor. We go there to find satisfaction and fulfillment. We go there to worship. A good friend of mine recently said, where my attention is, 
that's where my worship is. Where my focus is, that's where my worship is. What's getting your attention? What's getting your focus in life right now? What is getting your time? Let me ask you, friends, what are you really worshiping these days? Not, not like, what are you worshiping in church? Not what are you doing here? But what are you worshiping all week long? What are you looking to in your life in order to have a favorable, meaningful, pleasurable life? Because here's the point of this section if you're taking notes. All four phrases sort of rhyme. I'm into rhyming lately. God calls for full allegiance. God calls for full allegiance. He does not want to be one of many gods in your life. You see, we may be less explicit about it, but in many ways, we are these people. And God comes down through these plagues to say to the Egyptians, these gods that you are tempted to worship, these gods that you're tempted to give your lives to, they are no gods at all. They're powerless to give your life and your soul what you ultimately need and desire. Friends, this is why the final plague before Passover, which we'll talk about next week, Passover, the 10th plague, gets an entire week of its own. But the final plague before Passover, plague number nine, is what? Do you know? Darkness. Darkness. It's a huge plague. It's very significant. Exodus chapter 10, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Friends, the main God of Egypt, the God that they kind of saw as the head over all the other gods, was a God named Ra, and he was the God of the sun. And and there's kind of this crescendoing effect to the plagues, and in the end, in the end, the message is this, not even Ra, not even the God of all Egyptian gods has power compared to the power of Yahweh. Now, now, one more thing here before we move on. One of the things we see in the plagues um, is that if you read the narrative, at first, in the very first couple plagues, the Egyptian magicians and sorcerers are able to actually mimic the plagues on some level. Like Moses takes his staff and throws it down and it becomes a snake. And then what happens? Pharaoh calls his magicians and his sorcerers out and they throw down their staffs and they become snakes. And Pharaoh's like, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you, right? And then Moses puts his staff in the Nile and it turns to blood. And then the magicians turn some, some of their own water into blood. And then frogs all over the land. And here's where it starts to shift. Pharaoh's like, to his magicians and sorcerers, like he's like, can you guys get rid of these frogs? And they try and they can't, but they're like, but we can also make frogs, so they make more frogs, which really makes no sense, does it? Like that's, that's the stupidest miracle ever. Like we've got too many frogs here, but we can make more. Like great, that's super helpful, guys. Um, but that, it starts to turn right there. And then, and then in plague number three, when the gnats come, gnats everywhere, 
Like, I, I feel like that's the worst plague. Although if it was me, I'd have done mosquitoes. Like, it would have been over at plague three if it was mosquitoes, right? Uh, it says this, right in the middle of plague three. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Now, have you ever wondered, why does it happen this way? Why, like, at the beginning, are they able to kind of mimic, but then, as time goes on, they can't? Why does God allow it to go this way? Young people, you should write this down. The imitation gods of this world may look real for a while, but will ultimately be exposed as phony. They can mimic for a little while. They can kind of look like the real thing for just a short stint, but in the end, they will ultimately be exposed as phony. Materialism, having lots of money and all the good stuff, just the right clothes and shoes and devices and cars, will satisfy your soul. It'll feel great for a little while. You'll see your friends have all that stuff. You're like, man, that's the ticket. They seem really happy. And you'll get some of that stuff and you'll think, this is working. I feel better about myself. I feel cooler in Jordans than in regular shoes. It's true. I promise it's true. I've experienced it. When I wear my Jordans, I feel better about myself for a little while. That great boyfriend or girlfriend, that love of your life, they will satisfy you for a little while. It will seem to fill you up. That success in school or sports or dance or art or whatever your thing is will satisfy you for a little while. It's a really good imitation. But in the end... At some point, their power to produce the deep satisfaction and meaning and purpose and joy in your soul will cease. And they will not be able to do it anymore. Friends, this is why God calls for our full allegiance. Because he knows that everything else you give allegiance to will fail you. Last point today, final, final character. Any guesses? Come on, guys. Jesus. Right? I mean, that's the easiest question I asked all day, and not a single person. Pete, Amen, I'm, you know, I'm really disappointed. No, I'm just kidding. It's Jesus, guys. And some of you are thinking, like, I've read this story. I, his name's not even in there. Oh, but he is. Oh, but he is. Listen. And here's the point. God offers eternal deliverance. God offers eternal deliverance. In in Genesis chapter 1, God is creating the world, right? It says this. These are the first two verses of the Bible. Listen, this is amazing stuff. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. That word formless is talking about the chaos of things, the disorder of of things, like how things were not working together in harmony, right? That's That's what the darkness represents. Like things are not lit up. They're not right. There's not harmony and peace and joy and order. That's not, and then God, he starts to change that, doesn't he? And he brings order and peace and harmony and shalom, and things are the way God longs for them to be. 
And then, as we see the plagues unfold, we're all the way back to darkness. Do you see that? Have you ever wondered about the plagues? Like, why does Pharaoh take so long to relent? I mean, when you read it, for us, it seems like it's obvious God's doing something. Why doesn't he just bow a knee to the Lord and save himself all this hurt and pain? I'll tell you why I I, I don't think Pharaoh does it. Have you ever noticed that all the plagues are just natural disasters? They're just natural disasters. They're very explainable, right? Even the Nile turned to blood. Most scholars think it was just red algae. We we don't have to go there. We don't have to debate it. Some of you are going to come up afterwards and want to debate it with me. I'm not even saying I think that's true. I'm just saying, let's just leave that one, right? Then frogs come, and then the stink of the frogs brings flies and gnats, and then the locusts come to eat those things, and there's a hailstorm. I mean, it's like, man, it's a series of bad luck, right? It's It's just nature disintegrating. And then all of a sudden we get to darkness and it's, it's the world responding to evil and injustice and oppression and sin, right, friends? It's when we engage the way Pharaoh does and the way Egypt does in living in a way that is not the way God wants us to live, we bring chaos and disorder into the world and we undo all the harmony and peace and shalom that God created us for. Friends, The plagues show us the impact of sin. We've seen that in our world these days, right? When sin and injustice and evil and brokenness enter our world and people are shot and beaten to death, it creates chaos. And that chaos doesn't just happen out there, does it? It happens right in here. When I don't obey the Lord and when I don't follow his ways, then all of a sudden I bring that chaos and that darkness into my very own life. But have you ever noticed the other place where darkness is a big part of the story? Have you ever noticed that in the Gospel of Matthew that when Jesus' death on the cross is being described, it's the very first words of that description are these. This is Matthew chapter 27. From noon until three. How many hours is that? Three hours? How many days of darkness in Exodus? Three days? From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. See, this is a reference to the darkness that was experienced in the Exodus. This is is the Bible telling you and me that on the cross, Jesus comes to take on the darkness. He comes to challenge the chaos. He comes to take on the sin and evil and injustice of this world. And not just the sin and evil and injustice of Pharaohs, but the sin and evil and injustice of everything. All the brokenness, all the sin, all the pain of this entire world out there and in here, Jesus comes to take it on. Friends, you see, this is the ultimate exodus that Jesus is doing on the cross. He's the ultimate deliverer, and he's come to deliver you and me and all people throughout the world from the plague of sin and death. Friends, do you see how how the exodus points to the ultimate exodus, how Moses points to Jesus, and how the message of the cross is, and you don't have to live in darkness anymore. The chaos 
in your mind and in your heart and in your life and the worry and the anxiety and the stress and all the things that you feel down in here, you can be freed of that. God wants to put you back together. He wants to make things right again, just the way they were in the garden, the way he intends for them to be. For this is why, why Jesus says this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. See, the message here is, is are you tired of chasing after all these other gods? Are you just exhausted from, from this God disappointing you and this thing disappointing you and this thing that promised peace and hope and joy disappointing you yet again? Are you just tired of searching for it on your own? He says, come to me. I'm the one who will offer you true and lasting and eternal shalom, the shalom of the God of the universe. Friends, we've talked this morning about repentance, about turning from our sin turning away from allegiance to the things of this world and towards the God of the universe. We, we, we talked about allegiance to God alone, saying, God, you're the God I'll follow, right? And some of you today, God is saying to you this morning, I am your God. Declare your allegiance to me. You've, you've got a lot of allegiances in this world and, and they're, they're not working for you or they're bound to fail you. I will never fail you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The hope and peace that you yearn for and long for deep in your mind and heart and soul, I have it for you. Turn away from the darkness. Walk out of the darkness and into the light and embrace my son Jesus. Friends, some of you need today to make that declaration that Jesus is Lord. That he's Lord that he's your king, that he's your God, that, like, that he calls the shots in your life. That's what it means to make him like the primary place of your allegiance. Some of you need to put your faith and hope in Jesus today. The offer is there. Jesus says, you don't have to do anything to deserve it. I paid the price. I paved the way for you on the cross through my death and through my resurrection. You see, the cross is Jesus taking on the darkness and, and, the, and the empty tomb is that Jesus has defeated the darkness, that he's defeated death. And then obedience, doing what God says to do. Here's what God says to do. Declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Believe that his death and a resurrection offer you life and hope and peace and joy now and forever. And then make that declaration publicly with your mouth. And the way the scriptures tell us to be obedient, to declare Jesus as Lord is through baptism. It's a very simple thing. You just, you just go into the water and you're dunked down. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me, it's from darkness to light. It's from death to life. It's from bondage to freedom. And that's when we experience real deliverance. Deliverance that won't just last for a moment, but it will last for eternity. Friends, this morning we're celebrating baptism. Some of you today need to make today the day that you declare Jesus as Lord. You just need to tell God, God, I've been dancing around it. I've been sort of dabbling, 
but you are my Lord and you are my King. I'm going to give you a chance to pray for that in just a minute. Some of you, if you've made that decision, if you're making that decision today, or you made it last week or last year or 10 years ago, you still haven't declared publicly that Jesus is the Lord of your life. Will you walk in obedience today? Will you walk into these waters? Will you walk out of the darkness and chaos of this world into the order and harmony and light and peace and hope that God offers you. If you want to be baptized today, it can happen. I know you're sitting there and you're thinking, I'm not ready. I don't have swim trunks. I don't have a shirt. I don't know. I don't have a towel. Guess what? We got shirts and shorts and towels in the back. We got everything you need. If the Lord is calling you today to declare your faith in Jesus Christ, to make him Lord of your life and publicly declare it through baptism, do not let anything stand in your way. God is waiting for you to be obedient, to show you how he can work in your life. Maybe today your step of obedience is baptism. If that's true, I'm gonna pray in just a minute. If you're planning to be baptized, head on back during my prayer. If you are sitting there now and you said, I wasn't planning on it today, but you know what? Today is the day. Head on back as I pray. Just get up. If you're not even sure, if you're thinking, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. I'd like to talk to someone. Head on right back through those doors. A pastor would love to talk to you about being baptized. If it's today, great. If it's not, there'll be another opportunity coming soon. But don't let today pass if the Spirit is calling you to make Jesus Lord of your life. Would you pray with me this morning? And as I pray again, if you're being baptized, you can head on back. Father, this morning I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move and convict. We've got some folks who are declaring you as Lord, who are declaring that they no longer want to live in darkness, but want to walk in the light of life, the light that you offer Jesus. Would you bless this experience for them? Would you meet them in this moment? Would you affirm their faith? Would you speak confidence and hope and peace and joy into their hearts even as they walk into these waters? I pray, Lord, for people who maybe have been on the fence about you, have never put a stake in the ground and declared you as Lord, just accepted and said, I believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus was not just for all of creation, but also for me. And I receive him. I receive what he did for me. And I declare him as the Lord. God, I pray for anyone who, who's making that declaration even now as I speak, that you'd speak back to them, that you'd affirm them, that you'd remind them that they are your son and they are your daughter and that you will never leave them nor forsake them. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room who wasn't planning to be baptized, that you would move in their lives that you give them the courage, that you give them the faith, that your voice would just be unmistakable right now, that they would come back and take this step of obedience. We're so thankful for you, Lord. We're thankful for, for your goodness, for your power, for your mercy, for your kindness. We do not know what we would do without you. We need you, Lord. We love you. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen.